Hi, I'm Bryn Thompson. This is the Coburn Ventures podcast. It's for our clients, for investors, for our community of industry leaders, fellows, and friends. This is a group that loves the craft of investing, studies change, is dedicated to business analysis and leadership, and all that's behind the scenes of that work. I hope you enjoy it. interesting time in investing in which ESG or multi-stakeholder investing, the real process of it, the real how-to, is actively being defined by each one of us. It's defined by doing it. And though the marketers already have great taglines out and the regulators are having their say in what they want to highlight, investors will also create the market by putting their stake in the ground, by having our own process and our own philosophies. It's really an industry in a time of redefinition. In James Utterback's model of innovation, we would say this is a time of product definition, which comes before process definition. Though we talk about investment process, we're likely in the investment philosophy stage, which defines the product before we can clearly create the right process that will, of course, iterate over time, but at least get us going. We can do this at something close to you know, parallel streams, but these two stages are important to keep in mind that we actually may be, in Utterback's model, in a time of product definition. That's why speaking with Jags today is so helpful, so inspiring, and so grounding, because Jags is really a pioneer. He's so willing to explore what ESG investing really implies for how he does his work. And this has led him to incorporate ESG in ways that most of us might not anticipate. He meets with people that I wouldn't have considered. He has a clear understanding of his core beliefs and that guides his decision making along with, of course, all of his investment experience. Notably, Jags is not an ESG specialist. He's a portfolio manager. He just happens to think very, very deeply about ESG. So we'll discuss so much in this conversation from core beliefs, uh, his voting record, why he doesn't use the term engagement anymore, and finally, how all of this comes down to the day-to-day business of portfolio management and communicating his work to clients. I think it will give you a view in how he does multi-stakeholder in a very holistic sense, and hopefully it might spark some ideas that are resonant for your ESG philosophy and process. I hope you enjoy it. In 2006, Coburn Ventures got to do this really cool um, exchange, I guess, with Jorgen Vandersloot's uh, group at the time, Freedom Lab. And so uh, Pip and Dave and I spent each about three weeks um, in the Netherlands in an office on the canal in Amsterdam. One of the highlights of that is that we were going to, Pip and I were going to get dinner and this was not just any dinner because we were going to have the best Indian food in Amsterdam curated by Jag's Walia. So this, this was in 2006 and Jags, this was the first time I met you. We, during that dinner, got to talk about so many things and it's just really indicative of the type of thinker and person and human that Jags is. We went from, we designed um, what we thought would be the ideal office for Coburn Ventures in New York City and all the elements of it, who would show up there. And 
I'm not surprised that that then manifested into the seaport space eventually. It was really quite bang on. And then we and then we talked really deeply about investing and about serving clients and all those things as well. Um, meanwhile, we were also regaled because Jags is also a stand-up comic. So with all of that, we're here to talk with Jags today about um, how I would say there's a conventional way of doing investing and sort of, especially through like an ESG lens. And then there's the Jags way, which Excellent. is really, <laughs> which is really special. We're going to trademark that, right? So <laughs> it's really, really special and it goes way beneath the surface. So I think Jags, let's start there because you've actually thought about, you know, Hey, what are my core beliefs about what I'm doing here? And in a time where we're not yet to this new multi-stakeholder model, in the investing world, we're not there. And so there's no. there's there's a lot of work to be done to be able to make that journey. And you've done a lot of that personally. So do you wanna start, let's start with your high level beliefs and like maybe how you got there. Cool, excellent. So um, I think I started working on like, you know, investing and integrating ESG around 2008 and we just kind of started and we didn't know what we were doing. So a lot of where I am right now, 90% of that is just trial and error. And we just fix things as we go. And, you know, we just start doing things and we don't know really what we're doing when we started, but then it just kind of like improves slowly over time. So now I can tell you, you know, what my kind of like core beliefs are when it comes to integrating ESG. When we started, we had a whole bunch of different ones we were given. They were not beliefs that I kind of like, you know, grew out of myself from like experience. It was just like, you know, this is good and ESG is going to make you money as well. Those kinds of beliefs were like given to us. And now I've got like three different beliefs. So like my first one, and when it comes to, you know, integrating ESG to address climate change, which is the problem that I'm most passionate about. When it comes to, you know, using ESG for that, the first belief I have is that addressing a problem is going to be much more powerful than avoiding a problem. Like avoiding a problem is easy. You can walk away from lots of stuff. But so my first one is addressing is more powerful than avoiding. And my second one is that actually speaking to companies and other stakeholders helps solve the problem. So, you know, you could have said engagement works, but as we'll talk about later, engagement i find a really strong loaded term so i just like to call it talking to people which is what everyone does every day naturally you know so talking to people talking to companies talking to you know other ngos talking to kind of other investors it works to kind of you know solve the problem that's my second one and my third one is that ownership is responsibility and for me personally i I say it's impossible to like own a stock and not be responsible for it. So when you own a stock, if you put your fingerprints on that keyboard and you push the buy button and you're buying that stock, then, you know, all the good things that happen, all the bad things that can happen, they're now yours. Like you own it. Now you're responsible as well. So you need to step up and, you know, take that responsibility as well. So those are my three beliefs in a nutshell. In, in their Jags, you mentioned engagement and, and that word and in the prior session, you, you have some misgivings about the word engagement. Yeah. Yeah. A lot because 
Wow, I didn't know you had a lot of concerns. Oh, oh yeah, I do. Like really, I kind of, you know, I can feel kind of like, you know, the adrenaline glands start pumping when you start saying the word engagement, because then it, to me, it feels a lot like making demands to someone and they need to comply. Otherwise something bad is going to happen, which is kind of like a, a hostage situation or something, you know, like I have stock in your company and you need to do A, B and C. And if my demands are not met, I'm going to sell or divest or do something bad and painful and public. So I don't like the word engagement. What I like much more is when we're talking to these companies, we're trying to solve a problem. And so are they most of the time, you know, like if they understand the problem, they're also want to try to solve it as well. So to be honest, it's not engagement. It's just talking to the companies, having a dialogue with a purpose to move forwards and solve this problem. But if I would call it an engagement, all of a sudden people are going to look for like outcomes, milestones, deadlines, consequences. None of those words feel good when you say them, you know, but if I'm just saying, you know, like the three of us, imagine if me, Pip and Bryn had a problem that's common to all three of us that we're going to try and solve. We could sit down and, you know, regardless of what it would say on my business card or your business card, we could equally well just like, you know, brainstorm what are the different ideas to move forwards to solve this in a way that all three of us are happy. That's a nicer conversation. We could probably order some Indian food and have that conversation and have a great evening as we brainstorm that, you know, and then I wouldn't have to kind of like go back and say, I told them to do A, B and C and they have this much time. Otherwise, these bad things are going to happen. So I don't want that kind of latter engagement type scenario occurring. I do want the former scenario of like, let's all put our brains together and try and fix this thing. You know, I like those conversations better. There's also one aspect about you know, like who are you in this position to be able to know what the thing is yeah. that should be done. And I kind of comment that if there's going to be a police person, police mm -hmm. force, it probably shouldn't be the investor community to begin with. Yeah. yeah. And I can see you yeah. just bringing both your intense intelligence and how you think about these things into a space and creating a brainstorm. Does that usually work? Um, yeah, if you introduce it like that, you know, like I, if I would like, you know, speak to a CEO, the best conversations that we've had, like with CEOs, when we're trying to, you know, talk about uh, CO2 reduction, are not when you turn up to the meeting with demands in your hands to say, you need to decarbonize by 50% by 2030. Go, you know, like that conversation is really like an awkward one. But if I kind of come into the conversation with, you know, this is what we need for the Paris Climate Agreement. You know, this would like, you know, help the planet the most and like get this done. But here's my role. I'm, you know, and I'm going to say I'm just an investor. If I'm talking to a CEO. I've never done his job for one day in my life. So I can't come in with like how he needs to turn his company around when I've never run a company in my life and stuff. So I just come in to say, you know, I, we, we have a lot of power in the financial sector. We can allocate capital. You know, that's a really good thing to be like in control of and stuff. But I want to allocate capital in a way that, you know, would make me happy in terms of, you know, we want to make money and we want to go home guilt free thinking we did something good today, i.e. Like I've moved forward on the energy transition. 
I want to do that. And then when I speak to like, you know, the CEO of a company, he probably has exactly the same two objectives of, you know, he wants his business to do well. And, you know, he or she might also have children, so they have climate concerns as well. And then if we just start off with, you know, here's me, an investor, there's you, the CEO of this company, and it might be an oil company, it might be a utility company, you know, what options do we have? Like, you know, there are things we need to kind of understand, which I call like the complexities of engaging, you know, and we got to go through those complexities of engaging. And then if we can both understand those, then we'll see how much room we have to move. Jags, what I hear you saying is that, you know, when you, in a multi-stakeholder model, there's, there's one way you could do it, which is stakeholders coming in and transferring blame around essentially, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. And if you have a lot of power, like a shareholder that can get some sort of activist position, then you can like foist all of the responsibility back on somebody else. That's mm-hmm. one sort of game to play. What you're talking about is a stakeholder, a stakeholder model where everyone has something to offer and you're all underneath the same sort of, um, uh, you know, tent or umbrella, like literally holding stakes to hold up the, the tent. Mm-hmm. So let's work together and see what each person has to offer. Yeah, exactly. Is that a bit more? Yep, definitely. It is that stakeholder model because so many times you can just say, this product is bad. Let's go after the people who supply the product. Whereas I might be the one who is demanding the product, but nobody engaged with me. I just walked out that room and kept a low profile. Like, you know, <laughs> you should stop producing this oil. I'm going to drive home now, <laughs> that kind of stuff. I was once taught by one of my coaches that the word blame, uh, working definition for blame is the unwillingness to accept responsibility, which ties back to your, your number three point. And we often talk about not being willing to shift the suffering in the work that we do with people. So you come in an investor, you're right. Those are the fall guys. <laughs> like, yeah. It's a very convenient approach as an investor. If it's kind of step one is, well, we can make tons of money and everything ties up on the back end, right? No, that's not necessary. Okay, well, yeah. Okay, plan B. Let's at least blame the bad guys and make sure we're not one of them. Yeah, yeah. We'll engage. Yeah. Now, are there people in your ecosystem that say, you're getting too nutty, touchy-feely jags about this engage. Just go and engage. Um. Uh, not so much now, but definitely, you know, earlier, because, you know, if you've been doing this since like, whatever, you know, 12, 13 years or something, I think it was 2013 was the first time, like, you know, as an investor, you have a lot of people giving you information, the sell side community, mainly that can stuff, and then companies. 2013 was the first time as an investor, I got in touch with Greenpeace. And, you know, and there was also Amnesty International that same year to say, I have a problem with, you know, like an investment problem. Can you help inform me? And then, you know, it wasn't that, you know, investors need to be wary that NGOs might come knocking on their door. I actually kind of, you know, went out to say, you know, where is this NGO? I actually need to kind of knock on their door. And so the first time was like reaching out from an asset manager towards an NGO to say, like, you know, in 2013, it was on Arctic drilling to just say, okay, you know, I've got one of these companies wants to drill for oil in the Arctic. So 
can you like you know tell me a little bit more about like what the risks are that you see because i'm speaking to the company and you know i'm getting one story i'm doing some homework myself i'm getting like you know no story because i don't know what i'm doing here and so you know between the two of you can you like help educate me you know so that was like reaching out to them and then also can you say more about that how did that go like what huh. were they were they like who are you and what do you do and why yeah. so to be honest it went really well if you let them know like when I, I was talking to greenpeace at the time and you know they you know had views as well and like you know reports that were out there that you know like drilling for oil is bad that's like number one and then number two drilling for oil in the arctic is like you know really really bad and so they had a really nice report that they had written on this which was really you know decent that i was kind of like reading through 13 bullet points it had but then i also got to speak to the authors of the report and when i was talking to them i told them i'm not gonna read the report and then understand all of it and then we're done I'm going to read the report and probably not understand 80% of it. So we're going to have a Q&A dialogue. We're going to have to start calling each other and get somebody on speed dial here because I'm going to have more than one contact with you. And that started a really nice relationship and a dialogue that I had with Greenpeace up until today. Yeah, well, not today. The last time I spoke to them was two weeks ago. And it was basically a constant dialogue. So I basically let them know you know, you can educate me, you can inform me, because I see part of the picture, like, you know, when I can like, do my own research, when I speak to the company, I see another piece. When I spoke to the chairman of the company, we had like another piece. When I speak to the sell side, I got another piece. But, you know, you guys are actually on the ground, you know, like this is really good primary research, help me, give it to me. And they were so happy to do that, you know, and I gotta be honest, I've had so many like contact points with them. At one point I was thinking, I'm feeling guilty that I get so much resource from you. How do I pay for this? And they were so fantastic. They were like, you absolutely do not pay for this because now you're going to start to like inflect my independence and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I was like, so you'll give he me lots you, of input yeah. and refuse any money. That's fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> you know? But you've gone further than that. Can you say a little bit more about your attitude toward, um, you know, conversations with a variety of stakeholders? Yeah. Yep. So this really got triggered in 2015, I think it was, or it started in 2013 that it stepped up. Like one of the, you know, 2013 was basically, you know, when you're doing your homework on a stop, you want to get different viewpoints and, you know, see things from different angles. So that's why when I spoke to Greenpeace, they were really nice. They said, okay, if we're going to talk about Arctic drilling, the Inupiat community that lives there, you know, you should go there, you should meet them. First, we can let you kind of like have contact with, you know, our people who've spoken to them on the ground. That's really great. And then I was lucky enough. I think it was June of that year that I was kind of like up there, which was fantastic to, you know, meet people on the ground. But that really started my, you know, me starting to value having opinions on the ground. And so then, like I remember once I was going to an AGM of BPs in London at the Excel Center in 2015. And as you- The, walk a, from, the AGM is the gen, general annual yeah, meeting, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So I was going there and I had like one or two questions to ask. So, you know, I was kind of looking forward to like getting on stage and getting the microphone and I had my best suit and tie on and stuff. But as I was walking from the station to the entrance 
there's this, like this metal fence that had been erected, like those temporary barriers and stuff, and all these big uh-huh. security guys. And there was people on the other side, you know, like shouting stuff. And I didn't know Ang- what angry people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like proto, like you know, it looked like you know a group of people protesting about something. But I didn't know what they were talking about, so I'm kind of like walking in, and I see these guys on my right hand side, and. As they're kind of like shouting something, if you walk past them, you're not going to hear much anyways. So I just went up to like, you know, one guy. I don't, I just randomly picked him and stuff. He had like, you know, the loudest voice or something and just said to him, you know, what's going on? You know, like really what's going on? Should I be on that side of the fence? I might have like come in from the wrong door (laughs) or something. And then he started telling me that, you know, that BP wanted to drill for oil off the great Australian bite. I didn't even know what that was. It's just the southern coast of Australia happens to be a marine reserve, which I found out afterwards. So then I was like, okay. But then the security guys were looking at me because I'm wearing a suit that I'm supposed to be going in, not hanging around outside. And so wow. there was no time to talk to this guy more than about 10 seconds before security like you know, got to me. So then I said to him, I don't know anything about this, but Lucky for him, when I go to a conference, I've got like 20 business cards ruining the shape of my suit. So I pulled out one and I just like, you know, slid it through the fence to this guy and just said, look, that's me. I'm actually an investor in this company and stuff, and I'm going to go in for a meeting. But can you email me and tell me more about this? Because we have no time right now. And there's no way I'm going to keep off this big security guy. So I'm like, okay, I'm going, I'm going. I don't want any trouble. And just like walked in. And then during the AGM, I knew nothing about what was going on with that drilling plan off the Great Australian Bite. But that was something that, you know, the dialogue started when I got back to the office. Thank God that guy actually did email me and send me links to like, you know, what was going on. And then I could like, you know, continue doing my work, you know, together with these guys after that. Wow. Dags, you've also talked about, um, Again, kind of going back to there's a conventional thinking right now of what uh, ESG means. You've talked about being in in general meetings and in investors meetings, and there's there are you know resolutions and things up mm-hmm. for vote that seem like they would be good for the planet. That seem like at first glance, all any investors who put themselves in an ESG bucket or, or however you want to categorize it yeah. would vote for it. What mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about how those come up and like the depth of thinking around them and and your attitude toward those? Yeah. So in general, I like that we have more climate resolutions, but and you would think with the whole introduction that I think, you know, climate change is our biggest challenge, that I would support all of those resolutions. But look at my voting record. Sometimes I just do not. But the reason is there's one complexity when it comes to decarbonization, which is of these three objects, a company, my portfolio, and the planet. Each one of those is going to have a CO2 footprint. They don't always go the same way. And the first two, like a company CO2 footprint and my portfolio CO2 footprint, are irrelevant. The most important one, the only one that counts for 100%, is the planet's CO2 footprint, Mm. you know? So that's 100%. So mathematically, the other two have to be zero. And it's basically because sometimes they don't all move in the same way. Like a company 
can actually increase its CO2 footprint by doing something which will offset, you know, something even worse and make the planet's footprint lower. And I'll give a real example of this. But if that company's CO2 footprint is going to go up, it's going to look bad to an outsider who might think, but I wanted the CO2 footprint to go down. And when I own that company, and I might own lots of it, my portfolio CO2 footprint will also go up as that company's goes up or as I love what they're doing and I buy even more of that stock. And then, you know, people look at my portfolio and say, even now your CO2 footprint's going up and I thought you wanted it to go down. But I want it, it is the planet's CO2 footprint. I want that to go down. So one, you know, real example, and I mentioned this at the 2016 AGM of Shell, was that because um, there was a resolution there to say this company needs to decarbonize right now by like you know reducing its co2 footprint as of today cut back investing in you know oil and gas and start putting that money towards renewable right now and so you know i went against that resolution but what i explained was on the microphone in public is if shell is producing gas which it does a lot of and then you know uses that as lng it cools it down liquefies that gas sends it over to china and what china does as you know one of the world's biggest lng importer what it does is it's trying to make this coal to gas switch so it wants to decarbonize and it's saying in my power plants if i get rid of coal and i start using gas instead that's about 44 gas is 44 percent the co2 of coal so mm -hmm. let's just call it half you know like they just round up so if i just get out of coal and get into gas instead i can halve my co2 footprint and that's a reasonably quick thing to do and so it's a 50 percent drop in co2 so china's doing that the us has already been doing that since 2007 when the shale gas revolution happened that gas prices got cheaper than coal so that switching happened for economic reason and also for like climate reasons and a, an extra benefit so I was basically saying, if this company's product, as bad as it is, gas having a CO2 footprint, if it replaces something that's twice as bad, coal, then actually it's decarbonizing the planet, even though the more of that this company does, the higher its CO2 footprint's gonna be. And if I own it, my portfolio CO2 footprint, but the one that counts, the planet's, will be dropping much quicker. And that's the only one that counts. So Can that's you talk why, about what the yeah. response was in maybe in the room or after about that? Yeah. So in the room at the AGM, a lot of silence. But after is when we try to explain it. To be honest, at the beginning, we spoke to the, you know, the group of shareholders at a table, that resolution. For the first year, there was a lot of pushback. But I think that's because it's more complex than they wanted to see it. Like everyone wants like you know, really simple of take that company over there, tell him to reduce his CO2 footprint and then the planets will be down as well. You know, sometimes yes, sometimes no. But that last bit, sometimes no, didn't really kind of get thought about too deeply in the first year. But what was really nice with that specific shareholder group in the second year, they adjusted their next resolution a little bit. Is, are there situations where the carbon footprint may go down but the s the social actually has ramifications i'm thinking for example online shopping or i'm yeah. thinking about you know um use of airlines is delta bringing the world together and is that mm -hmm. a huge benefit or is that just like an 
absolute disaster. And how do you think about a situation like that? I'm guessing fairly humbly, but maybe sometimes it's just clearer. Yeah. So that happens really a lot where we might, you know, the term ESG, it gets bucketed like it's one thing and they're completely different. Environmental, social and governance issues, completely different. I could be in a conversation with a US utility in Michigan and I'm going to them because I care about ESG. They equally, you know, passionately care about ESG. The problem is we both picked a different letter. So I went to like a US utility caring about the environmental angle of like, if you can just shut down these five coal power plants, we could decarbonize really quickly. Whereas they really care about the social angles more than one of A, well, these power plants provide baseload electricity to all these communities, you know, like CMS might have 3.7 million customers there. And they might want hot water or electricity every single day. So they care about that social angle. I was like, oh, I didn't think about that letter. I only thought about my one that I picked. And they care about that really deeply, you know, that our community should have power, electricity, warm water. And then the other thing they also think about is some of these coal power plants might employ 600 people in a small community. And we happen to be the largest employer in that town. And if we look at the workforce, you know, if you've been working at a coal power plant, you're not going to work at an asset manager straight afterwards and stuff. So Jags, <laughs> it could be great for your business model. But for those communities, shutting down that coal power plant, that 600 people that now have to deal with unemployment, you know, so they have more S issues to deal with. And I might have just spoken to them without even looking at any S issues. And I just came with my big E on like, let's decarbonize and close these things down. You know, so we can both care about ESG. They might have a different letter in mind. You, you also had the comment, one of your insights is to ask the right question at the right places. Yeah, yep, excellent. And so, can, you, can you go through that? Yeah. Definitely, because sometimes when we're engaging with a company, we're asking them to do something they can't do, you know, or they, they're not you know, able to do. They might have regulation around like what they can do and can't do. So what I want to do is when I'm engaging with a company or discussing how we're going to solve this problem together, I have to understand what degrees of freedom this company has. And I won't on the outside because I've never run a utility or an oil company. So I need to understand from you know the company, how many degrees of freedom do you have? How much room do you have to move within your responsibilities? And that responsibility might be commitment to the communities that I serve. It might be the regulator actually says, I'm not closing down this coal power plant before 2035 or something. And so I might not have much more of a conversation to have with this company because if I want them to move beyond where they really can move, there's no point asking, you know, like the elephant to fly or something. So then I might actually be talking to the wrong person. I might have to then go to speak to the regulator, the person who's determined how many degrees of freedom this company has. And, you know, just like I might speak to like, you know, a protester to understand a social issue better. I might have to speak to the regulator to kind of know how much room does this company have? What determines that? Let's speak to the regulator. Like what's holding them back as well? 
And then I might find I have to speak to the regulator and ask them questions. And I have no further questions for this company. You know, so officially, if you're going to say, are you engaging with them? No, I'm not. I'm having a discussion with their regulator on what their constraints are. And then, you know, see how much of a voice I have as an investor in their community via this company. So, Jags, we've talked a lot about your process that's related to, uh, we'll just keep calling it ESG, but multi-stakeholder mm-hmm. work. How does that, can you talk a little bit about how then that you bring that back to returns in the portfolio? Yeah. And how, and maybe how you talk to clients about it too. Yeah. So in terms of talking to clients about it, that was one of the first things we did was we basically wrote our beliefs down and our approach and just put that in writing. It's a couple of pages of A4 and then just, you know, put that out there, send it to our clients and stuff. So they know, at least for our fund, this is like, you know, the transparency of what I believe and why we're doing it this way and stuff. So that was going to get done. But in terms of like impact on returns, that's a really good question because in the old days, which are only about 10 years ago, you know, it was integrating ESG was sold to us as this will help your returns. And now looking back, I would say, there's three different situations and in one of them it helps your returns and in the other two it might not help your returns but it might still be really important and we will still do it you know so i'm going to just give you like those three examples if i can like you know remember them off the top of my head like number one you might have a company which is you know investing in kind of like new solar projects and they've got a really good PPA contract and that's going to make lots of money and the sun really shines brightly in the location where that solar farm is going to be and stuff. That's really good. That's like a positive ESG thing. The capex on that is going to make you money. That's all really, really nice and stuff, you know, or like Tesla with like electric cars, forget the whole Bitcoin bit, but like, you know, know, here's a company that makes electric cars. Everyone's happy and stuff. So now, your ESG and you're making money were in the same direction. They were aligned. That's beautiful. But sometimes you might want a company to do something like it's operating in a manufacturing industry and I'm worried about worker safety. So we need to invest money to, you know, not guarantee, but to improve the safety of the employees that work here or I might be in an extraction industry and I might say, okay, these chemicals that run off, we need to store those safely as opposed to dumping them, burning them. That's going to cost you more money. It's a good ESG thing to do. It's not going to bring you more returns because it's going to actually increase the cost of doing business. But we might still want that company to do that. So now I'm going to deliberately do an ESG positive task, but that's going to actually shrink my margins versus somebody who is in the extractions industry and just chucks it out into a river behind somebody's house or something, you know, as long as they don't get fined for it. And then lastly, sometimes I do ESG things, which, you know, I've done in the past, which have no material impact, not a positive, not a negative on the earnings of this company. So like, you know, one was, you know, we had a, an oil company which operated in Uganda. This was back from 2011 till 2013, two years of my life. And Uganda, you know, 
was at a different place to where we are in terms of LGBT rights. So, you know, they wanted to bring in a law that basically kind of would give you the death penalty if you're gay or lesbian. And if you, you know, know of someone who is, but you haven't turned them into the police, a prison sentence. So a company that we had that operated in Uganda, which was one of the largest foreign investors in that country, we wanted to speak to them about LGBT rights and how they address that issue. But it's not that Uganda was their biggest country of operations. They, they had a portfolio of like, I don't know, 80 countries they operate in. It was one small place. It was small for this company, but it was big for Uganda having a large foreign investor in there. So it wasn't material for this company. And whether Uganda had respected LGBT rights more or less would not have affected the earnings. Nobody on the sell side was going to adjust numbers based on this and stuff, you know? So that was something we were really passionate about, like, you know, human rights, you know, incredibly important. If this company is in a place which is like, you know, a different level of human rights, they have degrees of influence. They can change behavior, you know? So we engaged with them on that. But that ESG engagement was not material in a positive or a negative way financially. And it was fantastically material for the people who live there. You know, imagine if, you know, if I was a gay Ugandan, that engagement working was very material, you know, not in euros or dollars, but yeah, for my life. Jex, what is the one change in the last year that has surprised you in terms of perhaps the pace, pace or lack of pace of change? I would say it's, at least in Europe, it's the speed with which our regulator wants to move towards labeling funds on, in terms of their ESG characteristics. And, you know, what they have in speed is fantastic. What it kind of misses is the more holistic approach of like, you know, A, distinguishing between whatever your company or your portfolio CO2 footprint is, that's not directly going to be the same direction as what the planet CO2 footprint is moving in. So, you know, I like the speed at which they're moving, but just that holistic thinking, I miss one piece and stuff. So, you know, so we're speaking to, you know, our EU regulator as well. One of the things that I started to do in changing interviews is to go back to someone 24 hours later and say, is there something else you wanted to add in or, oh, I should have asked that question. Oh, yeah. I blew my chance. But before we left for the day, Jax, there's one more question. Okay. Um, you're an oil investor. I was an oil investor. investor. Now I'm also an oil investor, but I do other stuff too. My question is, was there a moment that connected with you where you knew for you personally in your role as an investor in the world that there was no turning back? Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Um, that day, because I talked about this in a corridor at one of our Crosby retreats. Um, that was the 22nd of May, 2006. That was the moment that it changed for me as an investor. And like one or two years later, like I still remember that moment so clearly because at Crosby, we spoke about like, you know, some big change that had happened. And I was talking to somebody in the corridor because that day, uh, you know, 22nd of May, 2006, that was the day I became a dad. You know, and that, you know what happened to me? That was really weird. 
because I was sitting there, you know, like, you know, I was there for the whole, you know, like for the baby being born and all that kind of great stuff. But when I got back to work, like two weeks later, I was sitting at my desk as an investor, being long term and all that kind of stuff. And my whole time horizon shifted from my lifetime to her lifetime, like to my daughter's lifetime. Like that was the biggest one single change was my time horizon went out the window and her time horizon came into focus. And that became the most important thing. Like, okay, forget my life. This kid's got to have a good life. And that shifting of time horizon, you know, I remember I was talking to somebody in the corridor at Crosby and I said, that was like the biggest change that would like, you know, happened to me in my investment process was having a kid, becoming a dad. I just remember Pip in 95 when I started working at Morgan Stanley. I think it was even the job interview stage. Like family was kind of seen as like a source of weakness or something holding you back. Whereas now, like for me, it's a source of strength. It's like it's a motivating factor, you know, like in my work. So I, I like that shift that society's had from like 95 till, you know, today. I feel like talking to Jags was like being 10 years in the future. And I appreciate even more, Jags, how you've taken the questions that ESG asks us as investors, and you've taken them in a really clear-minded way. And since ESG is newer within the last decade or so, really, you know, I think many of us try to lean back on our old ways of doing things and the lenses to look through that, that worked in the past, where here you are just putting your business card through the security barrier to hear what other stakeholders are thinking about and wanting for the future too. Like you said, speaking to stakeholders helps to solve the problem. So thank you, Jags. You inspire the rest of us to think much more broadly and hopefully all in our own way, we'll be able to become as grounded as you are in your ESG process. Thanks for listening. <laughs>